praise and thanks for your plan of redemption this morning. We praise you as the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. And Jesus, we thank you very personally this morning for dying for us. And we praise you as the one who laid your life down willingly and who took it up again. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us now by your Holy Spirit and that you would empower everything that we are about to do as we look to the Bible. I am insufficient for this task. I need your help. And these dear people are insufficient on their own to give themselves eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. And so we pray for your help. We pray that you would be honored and glorified. We pray that Christ would be made much of today. We pray that we would love him more at the end of this service than we did when we came in. And we pray that our lives and our hearts and our minds would be changed. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I'm often hesitant to talk in superlatives. I think we do that too much just as a culture. Everything is like our favorite. Uh, the, the latest place we ate is the best restaurant we've ever been to. Uh, the last song that we heard, whatever, is our favorite song. It's my favorite song that's ever come out, you know, whatever. And, I mean, I'm sitting here right now saying this to you, and I'm tempted to say that Jerusalem that we just sang is certainly my new favorite song. So I'm about to break my own rule. I'm mindful of my little daughter, Noelle, who's almost three. Everything is her favorite, right? Everything. So we'll be talking about colors, and she'll say, you know, purple and pink and green and all of those things. They're all my favorite, just not yellow, not yellow. So apparently only yellow doesn't make the cut. But I will state this morning, I'm pretty confident to do this, that the two most important questions that you could ever consider are, number one, who is Jesus of Nazareth? And number two, is he dead? So number one, who is Jesus? Number two, is he dead? And that's the only comments that I'm going to make this morning by way of introduction. I hope that you're interested to hear from God's word now. We have many things to get to. And so without further ado, I would ask you to open your Bibles if you have them. If you don't, have your Bibles with you this morning. No sweat. We'll try to get the verses up here on the screen for your reference. We're going to be looking this morning to uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter uh, that he wrote to the Corinthian church. And we're going to be looking at chapter 15 and verses 1 through 28. I'm not going to have time this morning to do a really deep uh, assessment and a deep exposition of all of those verses, but we pray that this time will be profitable. So now, uh, before I say anything else, I want to read God's word for us so that it's in your mind. And if you have a copy of the scripture, follow along with me. This is the word of God. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, that our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word, today and every day. So I have four questions for us today, four questions that I want us to consider. Question number one is this, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And by gospel, that's the word we use for good news. Like it is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed to sinners. What is that? Well, in the first several verses of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us the major tenets, the major points of the biblical gospel. You can put your eyes there and see, beginning in verse 3, where he tells the Corinthian Christians, I delivered to you matters of first importance. I delivered to you what I received. And these are the primary things, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that Jesus was buried, that is, he really died, and then that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes on for several verses to demonstrate the legitimacy of Christ's resurrection by talking about all the people that the Lord Jesus appeared to, resurrected in the same body that he had when he was crucified. So in sum, if we were going to answer that question, what is the gospel? We can use these things that the Apostle Paul gives us and give a sufficient answer. Jesus died for our sins. What does that entail? That entails the truth, the reality that Jesus, the God-man, God the Son who took on flesh 2,000 years ago, went to the cross. And many of you familiar with the account of the crucifixion will know that the last thing that the Lord Jesus said before he gave his spirit up, before he breathed his last, 
was what? It is finished. To Tetelestai, it is in the original language. We'll say that as a slogan, as a banner that kind of hangs over us, and we should. It is finished. What did he mean? He meant at least two things. That full atonement had been accomplished for God's people. That means that all of the sin that you have committed, that I have committed, that all of God's people have ever committed already, committing currently, will commit, all of those sins were atoned for in Jesus. The eternal Son of God took the eternal wrath of God in the place of the people of God on the cross. Full atonement, can it be? Yes, it was made at Calvary. But secondly, when he said it is finished, he also meant that perfect righteousness had been accomplished for God's people. God has a standard that's called perfect righteousness, and nobody has it. None. So if Christ had atoned for your sin and wiped your slate clean, you still would be damned, and so would I. Because we would never be able to accomplish that perfect righteousness that God requires. But Jesus did that. As a man representing men, he lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law in every way. And so when he said, it is finished, he means full atonement and perfect righteousness is done in the place of his people. And then the second piece where Paul makes very clear that Jesus was buried. That matters, as I already alluded to. That makes clear that this was not just some feigning moment, right, where Jesus just passed out due to the horrific experience of crucifixion and people just thought he was dead. No. He was really dead. He had a spear stuck in his side to verify that reality. The Romans were very good at crucifixion, right? They, they really wouldn't have botched this one. So they stick a spear in his side, Fluid, bodily fluid, blood, and the kind of cardiac fluid come out. We know he's dead. He's put in the ground. He's really dead. He's there on Friday evening. He's there on Saturday morning. He's there Saturday afternoon into Saturday night. And then in the early hours of Sunday morning, he got up, really. I believe that. I trust that you believe that. We'll think more about that in just a moment. And we don't think here at CBC that the resurrection is just some great wonderful story that we can look to for inspiration. We don't think that it's a fairy tale or Aesop's fables or something. We think of it and we know it to be history, that Jesus got up from the grave on a Sunday morning and they never found his body. And we rejoice in that reality. But then finally, Paul talks explicitly, as I've already started to do, about the fact that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus conquered death in the place of his people. We'll think about that more in just a moment. Because you and I have a serious problem called physical death. Where even, again, if my sin is atoned for, and even if I'm counted righteous in Christ, I'm still going to be put in the ground one day, and so will you. That's a problem. We'll think more in just a moment about the significance of the resurrection as it pertains to our reconciliation with God, But as we continue to think about what the gospel is, the question has to be asked, okay, that's the news, brother. That's the news, but how does it apply to me? How can it be applied to me? It's a good question. And God's word is clear that in order to be saved from our sins, to be saved from death, from God's wrath, from hell, 
All that is required of us is that we simply would trust in the Lord Jesus. That we would trust in his life, his death, his resurrection in our place. And assumed in that, saying trust the Lord Jesus, place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Assumed in that is this heart change. A change of heart that we often will call repentance. Right? Repentance is not a work that you do. Repentance is something that God works in you. A change of heart where you say, God, I agree with you. I agree with your assessment of me. I agree with you that I'm a sinner and that you are holy and perfect. I affirm the fact that because you're good, you are righteous to judge sinners. And at the same time, we turn. We turn from our sin and we turn from our own merit. And we trust in Jesus alone. That's what it looks like to be a Christian, fundamentally. How do I become a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is as simple as that, friend. Trust Christ. Turn from your sin and your own righteousness. Cast yourself onto the mercy of Jesus. And you will be saved. That is the testimony of Scripture. Well, how does that happen, man? It sounds cool. You're telling me this. How does that happen? As I've already said, it's something that God ultimately does in us. The question has to be answered. There are two people sitting in the same pew, the same row of chairs. They hear the same gospel. One believes, the other doesn't. Well, what happened? Was one person smarter? No. Was one person less hardened by sin? Doubtful. Was one person like spiritually worse off? Yeah, I don't think so, because it's hard to be deader than dead, spiritually, right? So why did that guy come to faith? And we say, it's the work of God's Spirit. God did that. He didn't do that. So what happens is when we hear this message of the Lord Jesus Christ, His perfect life, we hear about Him being crucified for sinners, His death, His triumphant resurrection, God shows up and gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we say, you know, I'm not the smartest. I don't know everything. I don't have all this figured out, but I know that I know that I know that I need Jesus. I know that I know that I know that He's real and that what He accomplished for me is legit and I trust in Him. That's what conversion looks like. And we run to Christ in faith. So friends, that is the gospel. And when that happens and when someone turns from their sin and trusts Christ, God Almighty looks and says, righteous. Righteous. Not in yourself, but in Christ. You are Righteous, and you have been adopted into the family of God. You were once his enemy, you're now his child. He once was your judge, he's now your father. That's the good news of reconciliation to God. That's question number one. What is the gospel? Paul gives us those tenets of the gospel in the first several verses of 1 Corinthians 15. But I want to move us on now. We're going to skip over a little bit of material for the sake of time. And consider this question, number two. What if Jesus had not been raised from the dead? What if Jesus had not been raised from the dead? A couple of pieces to this answer. Part A, for the copious note takers in the room. Well, what if Jesus hadn't been raised? First, God is a liar. He's a fraud. 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is a fraud if Jesus had not been raised. God, after all, by His Spirit, predicted the resurrection of the Christ, His Holy One, through the prophets. Well, that's a lie if Jesus didn't get up from the dead. Jesus Himself, at several points, predicted His own resurrection during His earthly ministry. Well, that's a crock. It's bogus. It's whack. It's not true if He did not get up from the dead. The apostles by the Holy Spirit, inspired by them, proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. Well, friends, that's a delusion at best if Jesus is still in the grave. And pastors, back in that day up to today, I'm standing in that line, proclaim the resurrected Christ. It's nonsense if Jesus is still in the grave. It's deceptive, wicked even, you could say if Christ is still dead. So if Jesus is still in the grave and He has not been resurrected, either God can't be trusted because He doesn't do what He says He'll do, He isn't faithful, He isn't true, there is, after all, a shadow of turning in Him. And that's terrifying. Or, God lacks power. He wants to deliver on the promises that He makes, but He can't seem to figure out how to pull it off. He wanted to raise Christ from the dead. He even predicted that He would do it, but didn't quite have what it took to make it happen. That's pathetic. And it's hopeless. Not only for God, but for us. Hopeless. I hope you feel that. But the second piece of this answer, what if Jesus had not been raised, not only is God a fraud, but we are wasting our time. We are flat out wasting our time. Like, if Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, you are a fool, and so am I. Like, if you're sitting here this morning, I I assume that one of two things is true of you. You either believe with all your heart that Jesus is alive, or you are sincerely wrestling with that question and trying to determine if you believe it. I don't have a category, and the Scripture does not have a category for a person who would be sitting in a service like this saying, you know, yeah, I I believe in the Lord Jesus. I'm all about the church. I'm all about the Christian life. But I don't know that I believe the resurrection is real. That is just this kind of unthinkable place to live. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, you're a fool. So am I. Our preaching is in vain. I'm an idiot for leaving the corporate world and doing this. What we're doing right now is going to do nobody any good if Jesus had not been raised. Our faith is in vain and our faith is futile. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Why? Because, I want you to put your eyes on this Verse, verse 17 in particular. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So if Jesus had not been resurrected from the grave, put quite simply, we have not been reconciled to God. You have not been justified. So when we preach the gospel, we need to preach the cross, absolutely. We preach the perfect life of 
Jesus in our place, and we better preach the resurrection. Because oftentimes we think about the resurrection applying to eternal life in terms of being raised from the dead, but friends, in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, Paul makes very clear that the resurrection was necessary for your justification and mine. We were, Jesus was handed over for our sins, our transgressions, and he was raised for our justification. What's that about? If Christ was still in the grave, it would mean that the sacrifice was insufficient. It would mean that Christ had not been vindicated in what he did for you and me. In raising Christ from the dead, God the Father was looking on what he had done and said, Son, it's good. It's sufficient. And then raised him to life. So if Christ is still dead, God is not good with you. And you are not good with Him. We are still under the wrath of God, to use the language of John. And we're still dead spiritually. So whatever we think, think about this with me for just a moment. If Jesus is still in the ground, whatever you think has happened to you in terms of your transformed life is a sham. No real change has happened. I mean, maybe we've psyched ourselves up to live a better life. Maybe we've kind of brainwashed ourselves and changed our behavior. But none of it's real. There's no eternal value in the life that you now live that's different than the life you lived before. There must be some earthly explanation for that if Christ is still in the ground. And we're all, frankly, just playing games at this thing called Christianity. It's a charade. It's an act. It's a cultural thing we do. Whatever. There's nothing supernatural in it if Christ is still dead. And then Paul says this in verse 19. You can put your eyes on that. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's why I say with confidence. That if Jesus is not alive, you're a fool. So am I. We're to be pitied above all people that we're sitting here doing this and trying to live like we are if in fact Christ is still dead. So through Jesus, hear me out in this, Paul is not saying that in Christ we don't have hope in this life. He's acknowledging the reality that we do. In Christ there is hope in this life. But then I ask you this. Let's consider this together. Let's reason together. What is that hope that you have? What is that hope that I have in this life? The hope is that we've been rescued from the dominion of sin by Jesus and will one day be finally delivered from the power of sin and that we will be made pure and will be made blameless and we have hope that one day we will be righteous, really. We have hope in this life that we've been reconciled to God. And that one day we will be with Him forever in perfect relationship, in perfect peace, in perfect joy. We have hope in this life that we one day will see Jesus as He is. And that we'll be with Him and that we'll be satisfied forever in being with Him. We have hope in this life that we will finally be delivered from suffering. Your life is hard, so is mine. Not all of our lives are equally hard. We'll think about that in a moment. But we have hope in this life that this suffering we experience will not last forever. And we have hope that we will one day glorify God that we, the way that we were made to glorify Him. Well, friends, I think it should be clear to you that our hope is hope 
because of the promise of resurrection. Without resurrection, if Jesus is still dead, we have no hope. Because all of that hope that I just talked about is grounded in eternity. It's grounded in not this life ultimately. It's grounded in the life that we have been promised forever with God. And that only happens if resurrection is real. The idea that you would trust Christ only to have a better life now is nonsense. And I'm not talking Joel Osteen right now, for those in the room who know that guy. Your best life now, as in like you can have money and cars and happiness and pleasures untold in the name of Jesus, right? We're not, we're not talking about that. I'm talking about like the stuff that we value, peace within, right? Hope in God, you name it. Contentment in the Lord. The idea that you would trust Christ even to have that in this life is nonsense biblically. If that's all you're trusting Christ for is how your life will be now. The hope that we have as Christians is grounded in the promises of God of a new heavens and a new earth. The hope that we have as Christians is grounded in the promise that the Lord will be our God and we will be His people and that He will wipe every tear from our eye and we will be with Him forevermore where there will be no suffering, no sorrow, no pain. That's the hope of a Christian. Nothing less than that is the hope of a Christian. And none of that is legitimate if Jesus is still dead. So that's question number two. What if Christ had not been raised? Question number three. All right, well, what really happened? What's the truth? Paul is quite clear in verse 20 in answering that question, what really happened, man? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been raised from the dead. He got up on a Sunday morning 2,000 years ago and he lives still. And so Paul goes on to talk to us about the significance of that. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a biblical term, biblical phrase used to signify death. So he is the first fruits of all of those who have died. Meaning that the first fruits were right, the first part of the harvest that people would gather that was indicative of the harvest to come. So Jesus, in being the first to be raised from the dead bodily, and he is truly God, yes, and he is also truly man, the first human to be raised in righteousness imperishable from the grave is the first fruits. And everyone who trusts in him will likewise be raised. That is Paul's reason. But then he goes on to talk about Adam and Jesus. I've been talking about this some in Galatians, and I mean, when we picked this text out for Easter Sunday, I really didn't think about this, but it's kind of astonishing how often this pattern of the first and the second Adam shows up in the Bible, right? The fact that in the first Adam comes sin, Romans 5, in the second one, Jesus comes righteousness. Well, here we also have that same two Adams thing going on. Through Adam came death. Through Jesus comes resurrection and life. So what's all this Adam and Jesus stuff? Very briefly, it is this reality that all of us naturally by birth are in Adam. We are in him. Adam, as the first human being, is a representative of the entire human race. And so when he and Eve sinned against God, 
Scripture is clear that the entire human race, along with them, was plunged into ruin. And the entire creation, again, with the human beings being the crown of God's creation, the only creatures made in the image of God, made to rule over everything else, when human beings sinned and were plunged into ruin, the creation itself was cursed by God. This is why everything from shark attacks to bee stings to cancer exists. This is why there are things like depression and anxiety. All of that is a result of sin. It's why there are amazing and wonderful things in the world, and it's why there are horrible things in the world. So in Adam, we all fell. We are born with a nature that is not righteous. We are born with a nature that is fundamentally corrupt. This is why we never have to teach our children to do bad things. I've never once had to train my children to sin. We have to work at training our children to do righteousness. We have to train ourselves by the power of God's Spirit. By grace, we have to work to battle sin. We don't ever you know, have to fight the other direction. And so, in Adam, we fell. In Adam, we inherit not only his corruption, but his guilt. We are born guilty. We sin, we do bad things because we do what it's in our nature to do. And so, how are we saved? We are saved ultimately by being taken from being in Adam to being in Christ. Adam was our representative, but then by faith, Jesus becomes our representative and we are saved in him. He represents us. This is the biblical model of covenant heads, right? So Jesus is our representative. He what? Stood in our place. He took our condemnation. He took our wrath and our punishment. He accomplished righteousness that's ours, again, as our representative. And then everything that's His, everything that's His will be ours too. Not only the Atonement, not only the righteousness, but resurrection. In Him, we will be raised. And He is also to inherit an eternal kingdom. And we will be co-heirs with Him. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, those who are in Him will be raised too. That's the reasoning inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so if you're out there and you're concerned, like, brother, that sounds really good, but is this resurrection... Is it a fragile thing? Is this eternal life a fragile thing? The answer to that question is most certainly no. Because as you see Paul go on in verse 24 and following, he talks about the end that is to come. How Jesus will ultimately deliver the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed every enemy and after he rules over everything. And we see that ultimately all of this will result in the glory of God that he may be all in all. God is sovereignly working His redemption plan and bringing it to fulfillment according to His plan accomplished by His power and done for His glory. You can see that in verses 24 through 28. But I want to bring us now to our fourth and final question. Question number four is this. What does the empty tomb teach us? What does the empty tomb, the fact that Jesus is not there, what does that teach us this morning? So I've got four things that it's going to teach us. Number one, the empty tomb teaches us that God is faithful. 
God is faithful. He doesn't change his mind. He never changes. He never flips the script. He always keeps his promises. Pretty hefty promise that he made that he would raise his son from the dead. Pretty hefty promise that Jesus made. Nobody else has ever made this promise and kept it. I'm going to lay my life down, then I'm going to take it up again. No one. When people start saying things like that, we have them admitted to places. Right? Christ is the only person to have said that in history and pulled it off. It demonstrates to us God's utter faithfulness and His trustworthiness. He is worthy of your trust and mine. I'm mindful of a song that we sing here sometimes called When Trials Come. The last verse of that song goes this way. One day all things will be made new and I'll see the hope you've called me to. And in your kingdom, paved with gold, I'll praise your faithfulness of old. What's that saying? It's saying that there will come a day and there will come a time when we will look back and we'll know that God was faithful every single moment. In our fallen experience, we often don't feel like that. We don't think like that. It seems to us, it feels to us really sometimes like we are God forsaken in the difficulty of this life. But friend, you sit here this morning trusting Christ. It's not true. It's not true. God is ever faithful and ever true. And the empty tomb is a very powerful demonstration of that reality. You can trust Him. He is worthy of it. But secondly, number two, what does the empty tomb teach us? It teaches us that God is powerful. So not only is He faithful, He's powerful. You could put the word sovereign in there. So, the empty tomb is a very gripping demonstration of the fact that God is in decisive, absolute control of everything. Everything. His plan of redemption, this world, our lives. He's got it. He has planned and orchestrated world history. We'll talk about that here sometimes. God knows the future not just because He's really smart. God knows the future because He planned the future. He does as He pleases all the time, in every way. Our God is in the heavens. He does everything He pleases. That's true in every arena of life. The scripture is replete with examples, though, of how God does just exactly what He wants to do with even the most powerful rulers and empires in this world. If you think back through history, the most powerful people groups that have existed from the Egyptians to the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Persians to the Romans under whom the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. The Lord God did exactly what He wanted to do and accomplished exactly what He wanted to accomplish, even through the most powerful people on planet Earth. And He's also sovereign, friends. He's in control over human sin. This is deep. These are deep waters. Though he is not the author of sin and though God never sins himself, it is not as though sin thwarts the plans of God. Because as we've considered before, the greatest sin in the history of the world was the crucifixion of the Son of God. The greatest sin in the history of the world was the murder of the perfect one, the righteous Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. And God used precisely that sin 
to bring many sons and daughters to glory. He meant it. He planned it. Peter is very clear about that in Acts chapter 2. The disciples are clear about that in Acts chapter 4. It's just like what Joseph said in Genesis chapter 50, that though human beings really act, they intend evil, they do evil, and through that, not apart from it, not after it, but in that, God means good and God accomplishes good. That's power. That's wisdom. That's our God. That's what happened at the cross 2,000 years ago, and it was no accident. And that's what happened at the tomb 2,000 years ago. It was no accident. It was according to plan. God demonstrated his power in raising Jesus from the grave. So we've learned from the empty tomb that God is faithful. We've learned that he is powerful. And thirdly, we learn that we have an eternal hope. We have an eternal hope. So our lives, take heart in this this morning, our lives, as difficult and messed up, frankly, as they can be, are headed somewhere. That's called heaven. So on your darkest day, or even on your best day, you can rest in that reality. That God is driving this thing, and that there is a destination planned for you as His child. And it's a marvelous one. Because Christ got up from the dead, we know the end of the story. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you are experiencing difficulty, I trust everybody in the room is in some measure, at least people of a certain enough age where we would understand that reality. Are you going through difficult things even today? Physical suffering, illness, anxiety, depression, Substance abuse, addiction, dependency. Are you struggling really, really hard with sin and you're exhausted? You're exhausted. Like this fight is wearing me out. I, I aim to trust God, but I feel so much like Paul says, the things that I want to do, I'm not doing, and the things that I don't want to do, I'm doing them. And I don't know what to do, and I'm tired of battling sin. Well, if so... If you're experiencing those things, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? How do you process that? See, these are the kinds of questions we've got to ask to start trying to get underneath the suffering and the trial and the hardship of life. How do you process life in this fallen world? I would suggest, along with Jesus and Paul and the other writers of Scripture, that you process life in this fallen world by looking to the glory that is in store for you. You process life in this fallen world by looking to the end of the story. The glory that we are headed for is so great that the trials and the afflictions of this life, as substantial as they are, are called light and momentary by comparison. That's a statement about the greatness of the glory, not about the smallness of the suffering. The suffering can be significant, but by comparison it is nothing. Our minds can't comprehend. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can understand what the Lord has prepared for those who love Him. That's how we process life in this fallen world. And what's remarkable too about the promise of Scripture is that not only are we headed for a glorious existence, but we ourselves will be glorious. That's not to puff you up. That's to speak the truth of God to you. 
the Bible is clear. The whole creation groans and waits with eager longing for something. The whole creation groans and waits in pains like childbirth, Romans says. For what? So that it might obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. One day we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Now, I can't imagine what that means exactly. I trust you can't either. But God will deliver it, even though our imaginations fail us. This is what awaits. And this is, in large measure, how we cope and how we process life in this fallen world. And that's why, if our hope in Christ is for this life only, we are pathetic and pitiful people. Because our hope ultimately will not deliver us from suffering. Number four, so we've considered what we learn from the empty tomb, that God is faithful, God is powerful, that we have an eternal hope. And then lastly, we learn from the empty tomb that we are secure. We are secure in the Lord Jesus. So if you're like me and you're wrestling with these huge, massive promises of God, you hear them and you say, man, that sounds amazing, but it sounds awesome almost too good to be true. And, like, I know myself. I know my heart. I know my mind. I know my sin. I know my struggle. Like, I'm just not so sure this is going to work out for me in the end. You may be sitting there thinking, like, bro, you're talking about heaven. You're talking about glory. You're talking about being with God forever. Like, I'm not so sure I'm going to make it. You don't know me, man. Like, I'm a great sinner. To which I would say, friend, I'm confident that's true. And Christ is a greater Savior. And in Him, you have hope. The Jesus who got up from the dead is the same one who said that He will lose no one of all the people that the Father has given to Him. The same Jesus who took His life up from the grave is the same Jesus who says, My sheep hear My voice. I know them and they follow Me. I give them eternal life and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Those are strong hands to be in. Those are safe and secure hands to be in. And then God the Father, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, is in this too. Because right after Jesus said that no one will snatch His people from His hands, He also says that His Father, who is greater than Him, has given them to me And no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. By saying that, he certainly means that we're both God. But in that particular context, he means we're one in purpose. We are one in working for the salvation of God's people. The Father and the Son working together in the power of the Spirit to keep you. It's a safe place to be. The Jesus who took his life up from the grave prays for you. You want ground for your assurance. Look to Christ and His righteousness. Look to the fact that He lives forever to make intercession for His own. And therefore, you will be saved. Christ prays that we would be with Him to see His glory that the Father gave Him before the foundations of the world. And the Father always hears and answers the prayers of His Son. So if you sit here this morning... You're trusting in the Lord Jesus. You have nothing to fear, ultimately. You are secure, ultimately. You will never be put to shame. 
you are being kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Because God is able. Not because you're able, but because God is able. And because Christ is faithful. And because Christ is alive. Praise the Lord. The tomb is empty. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you again for what you have worked on our behalf. We thank you for this opportunity to look to the Bible. And we pray that you, by your Spirit, would be accompanying the things that have been said this morning. Even as we go about the rest of our days and our weeks, we pray that your word would be reverberating around in our minds and hearts. We pray that you would be working faith and repentance in us by your power. We pray that we would trust Christ completely. We pray that you would give us the full assurance of faith that you, in fact, are keeping us. And we pray that you would give us hope. Hope of bodily resurrection. Hope of life forever with you. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he ate the Passover with his disciples and instituted the Lord's Supper. And Matthew says that now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What a terrible lie or horrible mistake that was to make such a claim if you knew you couldn't deliver. To tell those men and to tell us that he would drink that cup again with us new in his Father's kingdom if he isn't. But he is. And he did. He did deliver on those words. As we've heard today, he is risen. He is risen indeed. And so the questions for us remain, are you in Christ today? Are you in spiritual union with Jesus today by faith? And have you identified with Christ publicly in the waters of believers' baptism? And are you living in fellowship and community with Christ's bride? You know, we we can't say we love Jesus and just give lip service to his bride. Jesus loves his bride. Jesus died for his bride. Jesus is going to receive his bride one day. And he loves his bride very much. And we should love what Jesus loves. And so if that's true, then come. Come to this table and remember what Christ has done for you today. If not, then come to Christ. Come to Christ today, right where you are. Come to Him by faith. And remember, the cross, as you look at these elements, as you look at this bread and you look at the cup, The cross was not the end of the story. Paul said that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Implication, he's alive. He's coming again. He's alive. And everyone in this room and everyone in history will meet him. You will see him in that body represented by this bread. You will see him glorified. And you will meet him either as Savior or as Judge. But meet him you will. And meet him we will. Jesus is unavoidable. So if you're not a Christian today, flee to Christ. And if you need us to help you do that and talk with you and pray with you, we will be here with you after the service to do so. If you're coming to the table today, uh, our custom here is to form a line down this middle aisle and to come to the table and break from the bread and either dip in this cup of wine or to take a cup of juice and then you can return to your seat along this wall as we sing. We'll be singing resurrection, the resurrection hymn, See What a Morning, very appropriate on Easter Sunday as we come and remember the Lord's death. So let's go to the Lord now and prepare our minds and hearts to commune together and with the risen Lord at his table today.